We are actually finishing our series on the life of Joseph, and today marks the end of a four-part series through the book of Genesis. We've been preaching through Genesis. I think we started the series back in 2016, and so it's really exciting for me as uh, one of the preachers here uh, to finish off this series, and uh, I pray that God would uh, really add his blessing uh, to today's sermon, uh, that this would be a great closure to the book of Genesis and an encouragement and a challenge to all of us as we seek to follow Christ. Well, uh, last week we learned about how Joseph, uh, as the governor of Egypt, was able to save his family from the great famine that had been plaguing Egypt, the land of Canaan, and the, the nations around. We also learned about how Joseph was reconciled to his brothers, these brothers who had sold him into slavery, these brothers who had betrayed him and wounded him so deeply. Now, for the last 17 years, where his brothers and his family had come to Egypt and, and settled in the land of Goshen, right? For the last 17 years, they've been living under Joseph's protection, under his provision. And, that is, and uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, he's now about to die, right? So after 17 years of, of, of living together, of being whole as a family, uh, Jacob the patriarch is about to die. And Genesis chapter 48 and 49, they contain Jacob's final blessings for his sons, and his final instructions to them for, for what they are to do with his body. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 49. And we're going to start reading with uh, verse 28. Genesis chapter 49, verse 28. May God bless the reading of his holy word. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished, finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. We're going to skip down to Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. We're going to skip to verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His, fathers also, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. 
I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Amen. The title of today's message, I know it says in your bulletins, uh, death and burial, or blessing. It's actually faith and forgiveness. Really different, right? Faith and forgiveness. And we're covering one of the most famous statements made in all of scripture. When Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it as evil against me, but God meant it as good. That's an amazing statement for Joseph to make towards his brothers, who decades ago had sold him into slavery. His brothers who had caused him so much pain and suffering. You see, as a result of his brother's evil, Joseph lived as a slave. Okay? He went from being his father's favorite son, his prized son, to becoming lowered as a slave. He suffered in jail under false accusations. Joseph was forgotten by friends. And he had to live most of his life estranged from his family, estranged from his homeland, as a Jew in the midst of Egyptians. Now today, I want us to ask the question, or I want to ask us this question. How can we become the kind of people who, like Joseph, can process suffering and evil against us as something God uses for good? Okay, that's the question for today. How can you and I become the kind of people who can process suffering, who can process evil that happens to us, not just as these scars and as these wounds and as these traumatic events, but as something God is able to use for good, something that God is able to use for his glory? Because that is one of the great marks of a life transformed by God. That is one of the great marks of a life that's transformed by God, that we are able to persevere through suffering, that we are able to forgive those who have sinned, those who have trespassed against us. We read that in our confession today. The Lord's Prayer clearly commands us not to just ask God for forgiveness, but to be able to forgive those who have sinned against us. You see, this is the mark of a life transformed by God. And although we may know this in our heads, we all know the Lord's Prayer. We're familiar with this. So many of us struggle with this in our hearts. Many of us are here today who have been hurt. We've been betrayed. We've been let down. And your suffering has not made you stronger. Your suffering has made you bitter. Right? Is that true of you? Think of some of your deepest wounds. Have those wounds healed? Have they turned into God-glorifying fruit where you can truly thank him and love others and demonstrate the gospel? Or are you bitter? Do you hold a grudge? Are you still angry? Or as the millennials say, are you still salty over that? Right. You see, we've seen this in ourselves and we've seen it in the people around us how suffering and pain makes us angry and unforgiving. But friends, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, the great uh, leader of South Africa, before he became president, he was in prison for 18 years for his efforts to fight apartheid. And if you aren't familiar with the term apartheid, it was the systemic racism and segregation in South Africa, right? It was institutionalized, uh, and Nelson Mandela and his movement, they were fighting against apartheid. 
and for his, his zeal, for his love of country and his desire to see justice and equity in his nation, he was imprisoned for 18 years. And reflecting upon his imprisonment, his imprisonment and the day of his freedom, he wrote this, and it's a fantastic quote that I hope will resonate in our hearts. As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. I would still be in prison. Do you guys see that? Mandela knew that it wasn't just concrete and metal that would imprison him in his life and his heart. He knew that if he didn't come to a place where he could forgive, if he didn't let go of his anger and his bitterness and his hatred, he would still be in prison. Church, today, God wants to remind us of the danger of bitterness. God wants to show us a path to true freedom, to lead us out of the prisons that our suffering, that our pain, that evil against us have created. He wants to lead us to to become a people that can live out true gospel-centered forgiveness. So I have four points I wanna try and unpack from our text today. And they're four instructions for us to become a more free and a forgiving people. And I'm gonna give all four at the top and then we'll work our way down so the note takers, you guys can appreciate. The first point is this, remember the promises of God, okay? You wanna be free? You wanna learn how to forgive as Christ has forgiven us? First, we remember the promises of God. Second, we remember the place of God. Remember the place of God. Third, we must see the perspective of God. And lastly, we must imitate the provision of God. All a bunch of four Ps, right? Remember the promises, remember the place, see the perspective, and imitate the provision. Now, in our text today, Jacob and his sons, they're all living in Egypt. They're all living in this great part of Egypt called Goshen, right? You might as well consider that like Santa Monica where the weather is good and, and, and the living is good, whatever. And um, except for the beach, it's pretty dirty over there. And uh, they're living in Goshen. And as Jacob is making his final preparations before his death, he sees his life coming to an end. He's making his final preparations. He brings his sons to him, all 12 of his sons, and he blesses each and every one of them. And Hebrews 11.21 tells us, and it, 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 it exalts Jacob for this action. It says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Okay? And this is specifically talking about Ephraim and Manasseh and how he did that in faith. But, but Jacob's in full blessing mode over his grandsons, over his sons. Now, why is this prayer of blessing such an expression of faith? Why is this so important? It's not, it doesn't seem that remarkable that you would bless the sons of Joseph, that you would bless your own sons. But here we see his heart. And here we see his motivation in Genesis chapter 48, verse 21. This is why he prays for them. This is why he blesses them. Jacob says, behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. The land of their fathers is not Goshen. The land of their fathers is not Egypt. The land of their fathers is Canaan. And Jacob is remembering the promises of God. He remembered that though they have been saved in Egypt, though they are prospering and flourishing in Egypt, though life is good and comfortable and safe in Egypt, their true home is Canaan. 
Jacob's remembering this. God promised Jacob's grandfather, who was Abraham, the land of Canaan, that that would be his inheritance. He promised his father Isaac the land of Canaan as the land flowing with milk and honey. And so Jacob here is reminding his sons that God will be with you. God will bless you. He will remember his promises to you that though Egypt has been good to you, Canaan is your home, okay? That though Egypt is good to you, Canaan is your home. And so Jacob is so set on the promised land of God that he instructs them with great detail to take his body back to Canaan, to bury him in the tomb of his fathers. Jacob is so convinced that God will one day fulfill his promise that he wants to be a part of that future fulfillment. You see, right now in Canaan, it's not property that belongs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, they've left that land. It belongs to the Hittites. It belongs to the, the, the Amorites and the Canaanites and all the other ites, right? If you read the Old Testament, you'll see them. But Jacob knows that, that one day God's going to make good on his promise. So he wants to be there. It's an act of faith. Joseph sees this and he understands this. He has his father embalmed, which is important because you don't want to trek through the desert with a rotting corpse, right? So he has him embalmed. It takes 40 days, right? They mourn over him for 70 days. Joseph sees the faith of his father. And so Joseph too, when he's about to die at the end of Genesis 50, he echoes his father's faith in the promises of God's commands. And he says, you have to take my bones out of Egypt as well. You have to take my bones, my body, out of Egypt into the promised land as well. Church, this is so important for us to consider as we are in the midst of suffering and even death, that God has promised us a home greater than this, okay? Even if you live in the amazing city as Pasadena, like Pasadena, just like me, right? There's a greater place to live. There is a greater abode that when we die in faith, we enter into paradise. That's God's promise, right? That's what Jesus promised that thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And we have to believe in God's promises that this place, that final eternal home for us will be a place with no more weeping and no more suffering where God will right all of the wrongs and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, do you know and understand the grand story of God's redemption? Do you cling to his promises as an anchor for your soul or are you a prisoner of the moment? Okay. Too many of us are prisoners of the moment. Too many of us are like, my life is terrible. I can't see past it. My life is so dark and so dreary. The circumstances are so depressing. I cannot see and fathom or believe in the goodness of God. Or for the rest of us, we're so comfortable and we're so happy we're thankful for our health, our relationships, our families, our jobs, our homes, our dogs, whatever it might be, that we actually have no expectation, no passion, no desire, no hunger to get to the promised land of God. We're like, you know what? I made it. Pasadena's good. La Cañada's better. All right? La Crescenta, schools are a 10. We're good. And so there's no ambition. There's no desire. There's no hunger. There's no thirst for the greater promises of God because we're so content with what this world has to offer. Friends, are you a prisoner of the moment? For better or worse. You see, God's story, it's so much greater 
than the momentary story of our lives. And the amazing work of God is to not only enter into your life, it's to not only enter into your moments and your days and to redeem those moments, the amazing grace of God is that he invites you to enter into his rest, okay? It's one thing for God to come down into your life and bless you, right? Bless you today, bless you this week, bless you this year, that's cool. You know what's better? The fact that he invites you to enter into his kingdom, to enter into his rest, to enter into his promised land. Jacob knew that this was better. Joseph knew that this was greater. As great as Egypt was, as great as Goshen was, they were clinging to the promise of God and the land that he had in store for them. Church, remembering the great promises of God, it's the starting point for us to be freed from the momentary sorrows of this world, that even in the face of death, even in the face of, of, of pain and struggle and suffering, that God has greater promises for us. And this prepares us to be the kind of people who are not crushed by suffering. You see, if you are a prisoner of the moment, all you see is that moment and that suffering is going to crush you and envelop you. But if you see something greater, if your heart is clinging to someone and a promise that is greater, you won't be crushed. You won't drown in the waves of sorrow. You'll become a person who can persevere and you'll be able to forgive those who hurt us those who wound us. The second point today comes, that comes to us is that we must remember the place of God. So first, we have to remember the promises of God. Second, we have to remember the place of God. Now, after Jacob died, the patriarch died, and the mourning period is complete, Joseph's older brothers, the 10 guys who sold him into slavery, they are overwhelmed with fear that Joseph is now going to take his revenge. Kind of makes sense, right? I was an older brother, I had a younger brother. I never hit my brother while my parents were watching, right? It's as soon as they left the room, like sucker punch to the ribs or our noogie or whatever it might be, right? And the brothers are thinking the same thing. Oh my gosh, father is away. He's now passed. Joseph is going to take his revenge. And the brothers send him a message that basically says, our father wants you to forgive us. Dad wants you to be nice to us. Kind of a cheap shot, isn't it? Right after your father has passed away, they use that as leverage. Most, most commentators actually believe that, that they made it up, that there was no conversation, that Jacob did not issue this command that Joseph had to forgive, had to pardon, had to show mercy towards his brothers. They just made that up. But we're told that when Joseph heard this, he wept. And Joseph weeps all throughout his life, doesn't he? We see this like over and over again. And he wept. Now, why did he weep? Okay, why did he, did he weep? Because he was just like reminded of his father who had just passed away. No, commentators believe that he wept because it showed that they still didn't trust him. After all that Joseph had done for them, after all he did to forgive them, to restore them, to protect them, to provide for them, he had done everything he possibly could have for their good, to show grace and love and mercy towards them. And they still didn't trust him, his own brothers, his own flesh and blood. So he wept. But nonetheless, Joseph replied in the most profound and redemptive way. And he says three things 
that complete and kind of seal this reconciliation. You see, last week we finished in Genesis chapter 45, and you would have thought after those amazing words that they would have been truly reconciled. But we see that, that the trust is still kind of shaky and frayed. These words of Joseph truly seal their reconciliation. Let's look at verses 19 to 21 again. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Derek Kidner uh, he is an old theologian and commentator I've been quoting throughout this series. He says this about Joseph's statement, and I loved it. Each sentence of this threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writing of one's wrongs to God, to see his providence in man's malice, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection are attitudes which, which anticipate what it means to be Christian. See, what Joseph does here is reflect the heart of Christ, reflect a life that is transformed by the power and the grace of God. The rest of this message is actually just unpacking uh, Joseph's threefold reply. So what does it mean to remember the place of God? It means simply this, that we leave the writing of one's wrongs to God. People have hurt you. People have wronged you. They've done evil against you. It means that we are people who are able to entrust those pains, those sorrows to God. It means that we take seriously Romans 12, 19. And it's going to go up on the screen. Paul writes, Beloved, church, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? You've heard it. Problem is, many of us don't. You see, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he never saw it as his duty or right to avenge himself. But here's the thing. If anyone could have, it was him. Joseph had all of the power of Egypt at his disposal. He was the second most powerful, influential man in all of Egypt only to Pharaoh. He could have had them thrown in prison. He could have been like, hey, you sold me into slavery. I'm going to sell you into slavery, right? Why don't you spend 22 years as a slave, 22 years, right, serving other people, in jail, being persecuted, being, mis uh, yeah, being judged, being isolated. See how that feels. Joseph could have done that. He could have even had them killed for what they did to him. But he refused to take the place of God. Joseph refused to take the place of God. And what was it that Joseph's brothers needed? They needed security, right? They were scared. They were scared that Joseph was going to come after them and punish them. They needed security. They needed forgiveness, right? They were so broken, so guilt-ridden for what they did to their brother. They needed forgiveness. They needed assurance. They needed assurance that this relationship, that that wasn't just lip service, but that Joseph truly loved them and was, had forgiven them. And Joseph knew that their deepest needs could only be fulfilled by God. You see, Joseph could have been like, yeah, I got you. He could have just pointed to himself and given them assurance and satisfied their needs from his own words and his own actions. But what does God, Joseph do? He says, am I in the place of God? 
Joseph doesn't try to take God's place with his own standards of what they deserved. He didn't impose his own brand of justice. Church, do you realize that when you refuse to forgive someone, when you remain bitter, when you cling to resentment, you are taking the place of God. Okay. When someone has wronged you and they're saying, please forgive me, I didn't mean that. Forgive me for what I did to you. I know it was wrong, it'll never happen again. And you do not forgive them. You stay angry, you stay bitter. You could be passive aggressive or, or act out, whatever it might be. When you refuse to forgive, you're trying to take the place of God. Rather than trusting in God's justice, you're seeking your own. Rather than allowing God to forgive, rather than allowing God to restore, you are actually wanting to see them in greater condemnation. You want to see them in greater alienation. You want to see your enemies suffer for what they did to you. And you are withholding possibly the, the forgiveness and grace of God. And I want to implore you today, get out of God's space. Get out of God's chair. Stop trying to take his place. Don't you see that, that God is the only one who has the right to judge? God is the only one who has the authority to judge. Uh, this pastor in New York, his name's Tim Keller, he offered an incredibly profound statement on this passage. He says that only God has the power to judge evil without becoming evil himself. Okay. God alone has the power and ability to judge evil without becoming evil himself. Because what happens when you and I repay evil with evil? We become evil, right? That's what happens to us. The only way to avoid evil is to surrender to the Lord and remember the place of God. When God says, vengeance is mine, it is mine to repay, you say, yes, Lord, I trust you. You will take care of it. You are not just a God of love and mercy and kindness and goodness. You are a God of justice and holiness and righteousness. And so I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to believe in you and your ability to judge more than me. That's the first thing we need to remember. We need to remember the place of God and not try to put ourselves in it. Amen? Third thing we need to see is we need to see the perspective of God. The perspective of God. Joseph's second statement was in verse 20. Uh, and, and, and this is where he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph, by the grace of God, was able to see the perspective of God. Here, Kidner wrote, he was able to see God's providence and man's malice. Okay, I love that. Okay, he could see God's providence and man's malice. I love the statement because Joseph isn't sugarcoating our suffering. Evil is real. Sin is painful. And Joseph isn't saying, hey guys, it's all good, right? Water under the bridge, right? There's a silver lining to everything. You can get that on a cheap Hallmark card and it does nothing to heal us, right? It does nothing to free us. It does nothing to, to restore us. Those are just cheap, emotional, spiritual platitudes. Rather, what Joseph does is acknowledge that what happened was evil. Okay, that is so important. He knows that their motivation, he knows that their intent, their actions, they were all evil. I mean, if you sell your younger brother out of jealousy and hatred into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, you are a piece of work, right? You're not a good person. You and your brothers 
are pretty terrible people. And he said, what you guys did was evil. And I think that's important for us to be able to acknowledge that, right? To not kind of medicate and numb ourselves away from the actual evil and pain in our lives. It's not, it's not right. You don't get healed because you say, oh, that wasn't that bad, right? Oh, that wasn't really that evil. No, what's important for healing and restoration is to be able to look at sin and see it for what it is. To call it out and then say, Lord, justice, God, vindicate me. God, bring healing. God, do something. But what has happened for Joseph? He sees evil for what it is, but he's also seen the perspective of God. And seeing the perspective of God has changed everything. The goodness and will of God has been indomitable in his life that even though being a slave was difficult, even though being imprisoned was painful, even though being forgotten and abandoned and betrayed wounded him to the deepest part of his heart, the goodness and will of God was indomitable in his life. He sees that God sent him to Egypt with a purpose, to save his family, to save nations, and to fulfill the promises that God had for him, his family, and all of Israel. Are you in the midst of suffering and pain? What is it right now that, that's, that's hurt you and haunting you and wounding you? Are you in the valley, not knowing where to go and how to get out? What are you telling yourself that you need right now to get healthy, to be made whole? Is it grit? Right? Grit is the new word, right? That's just like just being able to power through it, to persevere, to hang on and tough it out. If you think you need grit, God says you need something more. Are you saying, I just need the tools? I just need more resources, right? Maybe if I go to counseling, maybe if I get a better job, maybe if I find more friends, maybe if I X, Y, and Z, then I will be whole and happy. Maybe you just need a roadmap, right? You just need a plan. You need to you know, go through some like life coaching sessions and then everything will be right. The word of God today is telling us what you need more than these things is to see the perspective of God. If you are suffering today, if you are in the valley, God wants to lift you up, your eyes, your perspective out of that valley because he is on the mountaintop. And when you are on the mountaintop, you can see the valley, but you can also see the way out. You see the rivers, the lake, the ridges. You can see the roadmap. And that's where our God is, on that mountaintop, able to see our entire lives, not just being captive to a moment, not just being captive to this present time, but he can see everything from an eternal and a divine perspective. And so the word of God promises us in Romans 8, 28, this is a memory verse you guys probably know, that he is working out all things for the good of those who love him for those who are called according to his purpose. This is where all of this lines up, that God is a God who works out all things for the good of those who love him. This reminds me of Elizabeth Elliot, the famous missionary and author. And if you guys didn't know, like she lost not just one, but two husbands, right? We know of her first husband, Jim, Jim Elliot, who was martyred uh, by the uh, Aka Indians in Peru. Right, famous story, right? They were a young couple ministering and reaching out to an unreached people group in Peru. And Jim was speared, speared to death by the people he was trying to love and reach. But Elizabeth Elliot also lost her second husband to a devastating cancer. Okay. 
and reflecting upon those experiences. You don't have to throw it up on the screen. It's too many words. This is what she says. The experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. Okay. I love that first statement. She says, if you look at my life, just objectively speaking, it doesn't look like God blesses missionaries. It doesn't look like my life has been filled with grace and mercy and favor and blessing necessarily. To have had one husband murdered and another disintegrate through cancer is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. But this is not how a Christian judges things. It's not by sight. Not at all. My belief in the love of God is not by inference and it's not by instinct. It's by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in love is the last and highest victory of the faith that overcomes the world. I so much appreciate the honesty that Elizabeth Elliot was expressing right there. And yet the hope, the promise, the resolve that she has, that she's going to walk by faith and not by sight. And when that faith is anchored to the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is a faith that overcomes the world. You see, church, our faith, this is you and I, we can be waiting. We say, Lord, I'm putting my faith in you. I'm hoping in you to rescue me, to redeem me. Our faith becomes sight, not when you get out of your circumstance, not when everything seems to get better or work out. Your faith becomes sight when you look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel reminds us that Jesus himself experienced the greatest evil for the greatest good. See, this is what haunts us. The problem of pain and suffering. And we're saying, God, how can you allow me, my family, my loved ones, to experience so much pain and suffering? And how dare you call yourself good? Friends, look to the cross. Because in the cross, we see the greatest evil for the greatest good. There are two perspectives when it comes to the cross. When we consider the suffering of Jesus Christ from the earthly perspective, what do you see? You see a man that was betrayed by his brothers. You see a man that was um, crucified by the ones he came to save. When you look to Jesus as the man, you see a man in pain. And in loneliness, as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see that when he died, darkness covered the earth. But from God's perspective, from the mountaintop, from his great throne, from his divine perspective, we see that God sent his one and only son on a mission to die on the cross. That he knew only his son could give his life as a ransom for many. We see that through his blood, our sins are paid for. We see that through the cross, our forgiveness is secured. We see that through one man's obedience, many were made righteous. And we see that there wasn't a moment of Jesus's life that was apart from the Father's will. Okay. As terrible and as painful as the passion and the suffering of Christ was, there wasn't a second that was apart from the will of the Father. You see, church, if you doubt, if you doubt that our God is a God who can redeem the greatest evil for the greatest good, 
then you have to doubt the gospel itself. Okay. If you don't believe that God can take your suffering and your pain and turn it and redeem it for your good, you cannot believe in the gospel because that's what Jesus, God has done through, through Jesus Christ. And he's promised to work out all things for our good as well. So what about us who are suffering today? Those of us who have been wounded. It took 22 years for Joseph to realize God's purpose for his suffering. It really did. It took a long time. It took Jesus Christ to resurrect from the dead, to show his disciples why he had to suffer on the cross, why he had to be tried and, and killed as a murderer, or as a, yeah, yeah, as, sorry, as a criminal. And you may be waiting for the resolution to your own suffering. It'd be nice if we got that resolution today. It'd be nice if you had all of your answers, maybe in, in three days. And I honestly want to say this. For some of you, the answers might come quickly. You might be suffering, and God might come to you this week with a purpose, right, and a greater vision and a perspective for your suffering. For others, it might take a lifetime. And finally, for others, we may have to wait till Jesus returns. Okay. For some of you, you will experience suffering and loss that you will not see an answer to while you live and walk on this earth. Right? But Hebrews 11.13 has a powerful word for us who are waiting on God. The author of Hebrews writes this. All these, and he's talking about the saints, these heroes of faith, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Amen. My hope for you is that you will be able to see God's divine perspective for your suffering, for your pain, and for your loss as soon as possible. That's my prayer. That's my hope. But the reality is there are some of us who will die in faith, who will die in waiting. But the good news is that we do not die alone. We do not die bankrupt and emptied out. We die and get to go to a place where God has prepared for us, the city of God, where the sun and the moon will bow down to Jesus Christ because Christ and his light will serve as our lamp and as our guide. The last point today, I don't have time to elaborate and dive into, but it's simply this. Imitate the provision of God. Imitate the provision of God. If you look at Joseph's final statement to his brothers, this is what he says in verse 21. So do not fear, I will provide for you. He says that again. He already said that in verse 40, chapter 45. But he assures them. He says, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Church, this is love. For us to receive the love of Christ and to imitate that love to others. Practically speaking, I think there are a lot of people that we think we've forgiven. Okay? Someone might have wronged you. Someone might have hurt you. And so in your own heart, in your own prayers, in your own world and, and life, you've said, you know what, I'm good. I'm not resentful and I'm not bitter. But here's the thing. A lot of you haven't told that person yet. Right? A lot of you have not comforted that person 
with your forgiveness, with your blessing, with your provision. Okay? If you want genuine reconciliation, a reconciliation that Jesus offers us, that he calls us to offer to others, you cannot hide it in your heart. You need to imitate the provision of God for you towards the other person. When you forgive, would you be for them? Would you love them? Would you provide for them? And would you speak kindly to them? That's huge. Very practical. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Joseph's amazing words and declaration that though his brothers meant evil against him, that you meant it for good. I pray that right now you would give us the gift of such faith. That even in the midst of pain and darkness, even if we feel like we are wandering through the valleys, would you give us the gift of faith to believe in you? To believe in your promises, to believe that you are with us, to believe in, in, in your strength, in your might, in your justice, in your goodness. Help us to believe. Have mercy on us in our unbelief. And Father, I pray that you would help us all lift our eyes to Jesus Christ, who truly proves and testifies that you are a God who can use great evil for great good. We thank you again for the cross. And we pray that as we look to Jesus, you would not just bring comfort to our own hearts, but that as we follow Christ, you would help us to bring comfort, forgiveness, and grace to those around us and even our enemies. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.